From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, July 8th. Today, I'm joined by our roundtable regulars to discuss the politics and power of the asset management industry and draw a line from the massive fees earned by asset managers to the recent raft of radical decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court. Imogen Rose Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor and CEO. Hi, David. Hey, Brian, and hello, Imogen. Great to be back with you both after a brief break. Look forward to our conversation in a moment. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. The recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling in the case West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency not only curtails the federal government's ability to regulate climate change producing greenhouse gases, it also puts other federal regulations in the crosshairs. Case in point, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has proposed two new rules aimed at improving the reliability and comparability of ESG investments. These rules, one is the Fund Names Rule Amendment, and the other is the ESG Disclosure Rule, are currently open for comments. They're designed to rein in greenwashing and asset management. But with the court's EPA ruling, these could also be in jeopardy. Private equity giant KKR generated positive headlines when it shared some of the proceeds of its exit from CHI overhead doors with the employees of that company. But private equity employee ownership strategies deserve a closer look. So argue Marjorie Kelly and Karen Kahn of the Democracy Collaborative in a guest post on Impact Alpha. For example, when KKR bought Gibson Guitars in 2018, it piled $250 million in new debt onto the company's balance sheet and then channeled $225 million of that to KKR's partners as a special dividend. The authors say that just $7 million went to Gibson's 800 employees. That works out to less than $9,000 each. In this week's deal flow, TPG Rise Climate backed Intersect Power, which raised $750 million for renewable infrastructure. Intersect Power is the San Francisco-based clean energy company that develops utility-scale solar projects and will use the new capital to expand into green hydrogen and wind energy. Leapfrog backed Shubham to help low-income homebuyers in India get mortgages. The lender helps first-time buyers who don't have the documents required by other lenders. Shubham uses data collection, machine learning, and other tech-enabled tools to underwrite its loan process. And finally, so far most Opportunity Zone investments have gone into real estate deals, not business financing. Opzo, a black-led Miami-based fintech, is trying to tackle the obstacles to financing faced by small businesses in Opportunity Zones. Opzo provides up to $1 million in asset-backed working capital loans to small businesses. Now it's time for our featured conversation, and I'm joined once again by Imogen and David. Now, Imogen, there's been a backlash against ESG from some quarters who argue that people shouldn't be politicizing asset management with their social agendas. In your recent institutional impact column, you make the case that asset management has always been politicized. So what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is asset management, in particular, public pension plans are political by nature. They are, for the most part, run by elected officials who have political agendas. And, you know, the idea is is that your fiduciary duty is meant to mean that you put investment first, but the reality on the ground is much more complicated. 
Um, and this is even more true, by the way, these days of sovereign wealth funds, which often explicitly have a political agenda behind what they're doing. But, you know, when we think about ESG, it's naive to think that ESG is not in some way, shape or form political, right? Like, if you look at the, st- the states that tend to invest, invest in climate initiatives, they are more often than not blue states. And more often than not, the goals of, you know, pushing to combat climate change coincide with the political beliefs and agendas of the elected officials in charge, which is not to say that they're not making these decisions with sound financial reasons to do so, but it's naive to assume that there has not, there is not, and there has not historically been a political element to some of those decisions that are being made. I think Imogen is 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 right on that. I think it was sort of a convenient fiction on the part of the pro ESG or the pro impact side to sort of claim that it was some kind of um, uh, objective truth as opposed to you know its own agenda. Now you know you might or might not agree with that agenda, but it but it clearly has a political element, which we've seen as the politics have become more heated. I will say that the the backlash, which has you know been gaining strength, is itself a sign of the the strength of ESG. In a sense, it's it's winning, and so you know states like West Virginia or, or Texas, you know, public pension plans feel obliged now to uh, take a stand, you know, against it, um, precisely because you know the arguments have become so powerful in favor of it. To be fair, it's not the, it's not the public pension plans; it's the state legislature that's imposing actions on the pension funds. But I remember talking to the CIO of the West Virginia pension system, like a decade ago, and suggesting something about ESG. And he was like this super nice guy. And all of a sudden, he like started yelling at me. I was like, oh, yes, no. Like, I mean, it's really, people can respond really viscerally to this. Um, But it's not, you know, it's not as easy as, you know, Republican states versus Democratic states. The, the, one of the things that's happened is there are starting to be economic impacts from climate change, that we can make a financial argument as well as a sort of political and logical argument. You know, climate change investing is starting to have traction. Um, and also on the sort of the value side, people are recognizing that diversity is important, that, that, that the morality matters. And it's not as black and white as just, you know, red states versus blue states. You do see, for example, a lot of DEI initiatives happening in red states, particularly in somewhere like Texas. And again, this tends to be at public pension plans where despite, you know, all the functionality that is Texas, organized labor is actually still pretty powerful and DEI is something they care about. So if you take climate change out of the equation, it's not necessarily just, you know, as I said, red states versus blue states. So Imogen, and just to clarify by DEI, you mean diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in your latest institutional impact column, you make a a very fiery case, uh, really the gloves came off uh, from Imogen, so to speak, that the funding provided by prominent asset managers to political figures has directly contributed to a dramatically rightward, and you make the case, radical shift in U.S. politics, which we see culminated in the recent string of Supreme Court decisions that just came out. Why, Why such a fiery case? Well, I think the recent string of Supreme Court decisions that we've seen, including sort of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you know, the effectively neutering of the EPA, um, and other decisions, including you know 
gun gun rights and Miranda rights, as we all know, are having a significant and potentially devastating impact on civil liberties and progress that has been made over the last 50 years, in, in particular, you know, women's rights to choose, um, but also the implication is an attack on civil rights more generally. The Supreme Court that is making these rulings was very clearly put in place by the you know, actions that G- the GOP has taken over, let's call it, the last six years, starting with the election of Trump um, and Mitch McConnell's initiatives around the judiciary. And that GOP agenda has been bankrolled by a key handful of funders, including some from the asset management industry, most particularly and well-known Steve Schwartzman, but there are others. Steve Schwartzman, the CEO of Blackstone, right? Yes. So the mammoth private equity firm Blackstone, which has a lot of investments from public pension plans, as well as other institutional investors. And which has a now quite visible uh, ESG impact uh, uh, agenda and, and fundraising uh, efforts. Exactly. And so, and look, and there's always been, so you can look at, and so one of the things I did is I looked at who are the biggest donors to the GOP during the last three election cycles. And you'll see, you know, there there are asset managers or people who have made the wealth from the asset management industry who have been sizable donors on both the left and the right. And this isn't news. This isn't a new thing. This has been happening you know, as long as asset managers have been getting rich. And, and, and for the most part, we just overlook it. The difference now is that these donors are contributing to a party that they clearly know has this incredibly, you know, fascist-leaning right-wing agenda that is going out of its way to dismantle civil liberties, including things, say, like civil rights, that, you know, most individuals and, you know, most unions and most pension beneficiaries are in favor of, and that, you know, have the danger of, you know, causing social unrest and having negative social and financial impacts on our economy and on our society. So in the past, you would be like, well, you know, and this, you know, there's an FT article about this a year ago. So there were activists who were pushing back saying pension plans shouldn't be investing in Blackstone because Steve Schwartzman is such a contributor to the GOP and such and friends with Trump. And the public pension plans were like, no, you know, we would never mix, you know, politics with our fiduciary duty. Our fiduciary duty is to invest in the best manager possible. You know, Blackstone's awesome. So we gave him a bunch of money. The problem is that now that Steve Schwartz, like what Steve Schwartzman is contributing to, and look, as far as, far as we know, Steve Schwartzman is totally in favor of all women's right to choose, right? No one's suggesting that he personally necessarily believes the same ideology as, you know, the, the, the extreme religious right that has taken over the, the views of the Supreme Court. However, the quid pro quo within the GOP is that the sort of, you know, low tax, low regulation crowd have teamed up with the evangelicals to create this mess that we're in. And it's that teaming up, that's the problem. And so the point I'm making is, is that you can no longer use the excuse, excuse of fiduciary duty to overlook what the likes of Schwartzman, Schwartzmans are doing and the fact that their wealth is built 
largely on institutions such as public pension plans. And that also extends, I would argue, to you know, foundations and endowments, especially those who want to think of themselves as being mission aligned. And why does it matter the source? Because there are lots of wealthy donors to the GOP, right? And Steve Schwartzman made his contributions to the GOP in his personal capacity. He, he, didn't, uh, he didn't make it in his professional capacity as the CEO of Blackstone. Um, and it wasn't Blackstone's money going to the GOP, although don't quote me on that because maybe there, there, there are some corporate funds that have contributed to different PACs over the years, I'm sure. Uh, but but it's, it's Steve Schwartzman acting in his capacity as an individual uh, citizen, right, to, to finance these elections. Um, in the manner he sees fit and use his his financial capital as his voice, which the Supreme Court has argued is is constitutionally protected speech. Uh, and and so my, my question is, you know, do we do we go after the sources of wealth of other you know, political actors who whose views we don't agree with? Or why why are you kind of putting in your crosshairs, if you will, your, your rhetorical crosshairs, the you know, asset managers? Because I'm not making an activist argument, I'm making a fiduciary argument, right? My, my argument is effectively the same argument as like the shareholder commons' argument, which is that when, and it's not a, it's not a Republican, it's not an anti, I want to be very clear about this, it's not an anti-Republican argument, it's, or, and it's not an anti, you know, writing big checks to politicians argument. I think we need campaign finance reform, I think it's disgusting that there's so much money in politics, but that's the reality. My point is, when the GOP got taken over by a bunch of hacks and, you know, pursued what is an extremist, you know, fascist-Christian agenda that is arguably damaging to the U.S. economy, then you as an investor have a fiduciary, arguably a fiduciary duty to consider what the impact is of the the fees that you're paying to these institutions. And at the top of these institutions are individuals like Steve Schwartzman who are making those political donations. So at the point it becomes disruptive and and dangerous, it seems like that there is a both ethical but also economic responsibility to step in and take a look at this. And there are, you know, there are uh, economic and financial implications, as Imogen argues, you know, certainly on the on the Roe v. Wade and, and, ab- and abortion rights and reproductive rights side, but most pointedly on this um, other decision that came down on uh, uh, West Virginia versus EPA, which curtailed the EPA's ability to regulate the emissions from power plants. And, you know, you'd think, oh, you know, anti-regulatory, you know, pro is pro-business. But, you know, there were many, many corporations, including some, you know, you know, power uh, utilities and others that um, wanted to be regulated because they want to be, in a sense, forced to do, you know, the right thing uh, to get on the right side of the climate change issues. And they want those rules to be um, fair across the whole industry. So uh, therefore, you know, let, let, let everybody play by the same rules where they'll be happy to compete. Instead, now we have, you know, this sort of um, 
you know, scattershot kind of policymaking that has to, you know, somehow walk a fine line to, to, to get through the courts. And everybody's, you know, sort of wondering what, what they can do. So it's not necessarily a pro-business argument that the, that the, that the court is, um, it's, it's, it's some kind of other agenda that's being played out. But that's also my point, right? Like, don't say you care about climate change and then give a bunch of money to someone who is supporting the dismantling of the EPA, right? Like, you can't dislodge the individual from the institution. The individual is making them, mostly his, money through the institution, and that institution is built on the back of fees that are paid from investors, you mentioned the, the shareholder commons, which I think is this uh, notion, what they call, you know, sort of wonky term beta stewardship. But the notion is that there's these broader systemic risks that investors and asset managers have to account for, as well as the particular, you know, selections of stocks and other investments they make. And that um, in some cases, these broader systemic risks, whether it be climate change or uh, income inequality or or, or or women's empowerment or, or, or disempowerment, as the case may be, um, uh, can outweigh whatever you know smarts they might have about picking stocks. Yeah, and look, what Steve Schwartzman does with his money would be none of my business if, it's business if it wasn't for the fact that the politicians that his funding helped put in place resulted in you know, the dismantlement of Roe versus Wade and my control over my healthcare decisions. And as I said, the sort of the social and economic impacts of that. So it used to be that we that we turned a blind eye to it, that that like, yeah, the First Amendment exists, that wealthy fund managers would allow to do whatever they want with their money, and that very well that, that should still be the case. However, you know, two things have happened. One is this extreme right shift that has been funded by a key group of very wealthy people. And the other is this creation of ginormous pools of wealth with which allow people to have this outsized political influence. And some of those ginormous pools of wealth come from the asset management industry. I want to get back to this politicization question, because I do think if we agree that, that you know, ESG impact, what, what have you, is, is, has been politicized, um, then it's incumbent and we've talked about that many times in this podcast, for there to be actually a political movement and a popular support for those kind of policies, um, both investment policies, but also public policies. Um, and, you know, you know, if, 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 if the court's saying, well, Congress or the elected officials need to delegate this responsibility to the agencies to regulate, say, climate change, then let's get a popular groundswell behind getting those elected officials to, 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 to set those policies. I mean, you know, if it's going to be political, you know, then, then let's, let's actually, you know, get, get, get political. Are you familiar with the gridlock that is Washington? <laughs> uh, all, all too familiar. <laughs> but, but I mean, it is on the, um, it, it is, you see lots of legislation going through state legislatures around like pension plans all the time, including ESG. So, you know, there's constantly, New York State is constantly fighting, like, policies to divest from fossil fuels. Like, and, and investment offices don't like these kind of blanket policies. They would rather kind of get there on their own. So, but that, I mean, that, and I'll give you that's what the whole di- fossil fuel divestment movement was about. And it's, it's been effective, but again, it's been really effective because there is also an economic argument. So where do we go from here, Imogen? <laughs> Campaign finance reform. Broad political mobilization. <laughs> Money out of politics. 
So short of campaign finance reform, Imogen, uh, what about the number of what might be self-described mission-aligned investors, whether they be pension funds or endowments or or the like, charitable organizations that have their money with organizations like Blackstone and the like, is is do you, have you seen in your in your reporting, you know, any any movement uh, there to uh, to have these mission-aligned investors, you know, take move put their money where their mouth is and and move away from doing business with uh, and and generating the fees that kind of you know, create the fortunes that then finance uh, these political agendas? That's, that's, a, that's a really good question, Brian. And that's sort of the point I was trying to make earlier that I think that, so you've, you have, there is precedent for this with organized labor. Like when you had a handful of pension managers who started campaigning for defined benefit pension reform and or charter schools, um, unions got very upset and did what unions do very well. And they jumped up and down and they protested and they marched. Um, and they put pre- pressure on elected officials who, again, were overseeing public pension plans to stop investing in hedge funds. And or if not in hedge funds broadly, in uh, specific hedge funds. And they had a fair amount of success in part because overall performance of hedge funds, although not necessarily individual hedge funds, has been really poor for the last decade. Um, and also because I think there is some validity to the case of, you know, why should a defined benefit pension plan be giving fees to a money manager who is using his wealth to end the future of defined benefit pension plans, right? Um, so there has been some success there and it's still kind of a touchy issue that flares up every now and then the point i'm really making is we should apply that analysis more broadly to both investing in general and more sort of more narrowly to impact investing and we think when we think about mission alignment again it's not about a purity test it's not saying you know my values must perfectly align with the values of the investment manager that I'm giving money to. But if I'm giving someone like a boat ton of fees, you know, I think it's reasonable to ex- accept, expect that they don't turn around and fuel you know, a toxic GOP that I think is doing terrible harm to the country and therefore going to be negatively beneficial to the long-term health of my investment portfolio, not to mention is not aligned with my mission. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to end it. Thank you so much, Imogen Rose-Smith. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, David. David Bank. What what she said. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to David Imogen and our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. Subscribe to Impact Alpha to get full access to all of our content, including the daily email brief. Right now, we're offering podcast listeners $100 off their first year subscription. You can go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm TPI Cap. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care.